To study theology is not so much an academic endeavor as it is a relational endeavor. It is the study of God himself, what he has revealed to us about his character and his nature, who we are and how we connect with him. And these foundational Christian doctrines are not something new with our generation. For nearly 2,000 years, the church has been built upon the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and prophets as written in God's word. When we do theology, we are joining together with the generations of the church that have gone before us in declaring the timeless truths of God. This has always been about a relationship. It's always been about love. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Who is Jesus? He's the Savior. He's anointed as prophet because he comes to declare the truth of God. No one else ever hung upon a cross and bore my sins and carried them far away. No one else was ever laid in a grave and came up on the third day for my justification. So that all those who come to Christ may enter in. So that all those who place faith in Christ might be saved, but not only saved, but sanctified. If you came here this morning seeking religion, you came to the wrong building. So how many of you came to the wrong building? Yeah, I just, yeah, Francis is great. Uh, Bible. I, I'm, I'm a Bible geek. Welcome to the world. I, I had the privilege of being a part of the Bible Project. I was one of the found, I was a founding board member and just love what's happening. And I love the Bible and I want to talk to you about it. So why a Bible? Christianity and, is, and Judaism are the, really the only religions of a book. Uh, Islam has a book too, but they treat it a little bit differently. We want to look at this book together. Why do it? So first of all, Exodus 14. Stuff's up here on the screen. We're do, we're, there's not a passage I'm working through. I'll work through several. But you know the story. They've been enslaved in Egypt for a long time, and they're now on their way out. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. There were the Egyptians marching after him. Yikes! Terrified, it says here. Yikes, is what they said. <laughs> Was it because there are no graves in Egypt you brought us here to the desert to die? Have, what have we done bring us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. Slavery was wonderful. <laughs> then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. All that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it to dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through on the sea on dry ground. With a wall of water on their right and their left, the Egyptian pursued. All the Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed him into the sea. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that he redeems his people from bad places. That's the first thing about scripture is it redeems. But it doesn't stop there. The people get across the sea. Moses leads the Israelites and sing the song, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Horse and driver is hurled into the sea. The Lord is in my strength and my defense. He is praising God with everything in him. And a few minutes later, Miriam, the prophet, takes over. And she leads the people and sings the same thing. Sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Horse and driver is hurled into the sea. Big deal. Three days later, Exodus 16, they head on towards Sinai. 
A seraph from come to the daughter of not sin, seen, <laughs> which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month. In the desert, the whole community grumbled. So he goes from praise to grumbling in no time at all. Israel had said to them, if only you died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, then we'd sit around pots of meat, ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us this place to starve the entire assembly. Any of you fickle like this? Do you have a friend who's fickle like this? Yeah. But that evening, the quail came, covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, the thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? It's bread the Lord has given you to eat. And what we see here is the Lord provides. The Lord redeems. The Lord provides. This is all in that A paragraph there. Exodus 17. The Amalekites. Think of the nastiest... Well, think of Russian armies coming into Ukraine. That's the Amalekites. Highly armed angry, dominating, they attacked the Israelites. How many tanks did the Israelites have with them when they went out of Egypt? I mean, they're unarmed. Their biggest thing is they've got a staff or two. Moses said, Joshua, choose our men and go and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now you're Joshua. Go fight the Amalekites. What are you thinking? Bad idea, Joshua. Do you know who they are? But what happens... Because of God's power, Joshua overcame the Amalekite army. What we see here is God protects. And a key phrase in this passage is, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. See, that's what the Bible is. That's the first statement about the Bible. And this is your paragraph. So he wrote everything down, Exodus 24. He's up on the mountain talking to God. Write everything down the Lord had said. So on your handout, we see here, first of all, the Bible is a document written by people telling the story of God acting in history to redeem, provide, and protect his people. Why do we write it down? So we can remember it when things are not going well, when the Amalekites attack, when there's no food to eat, and you start to get scared, you go back to the Bible and say, here's where it's at. And then secondly, Exodus 24, Exodus 34, God invites the people into covenant relationship, like marriage, with rules of relationship. And there are rules to the relationship. So we have an intimate relation with him and can be a people characterized by faithfulness, generosity, and justice. Now, Sherry and I just celebrated 55 years of marriage. Yeah. Clap for her. She, she needs it. Yeah. Uh, She's out with our granddaughter who gets married at the end of this month, and uh, just really fun. There are rules of our relationship. Like day two, we established a rule. This is about me. To her, thou shalt not touch us, thy husband, when he is asleep, unless thou absolutely needest to. Then you're welcome to. It's been a rule of relationship for a long time. It helps our relationship go better, because when I wake up, it's hard for me to go back to sleep. But if she's having a nightmare, I want her to touch me. And that's the kind of rule of relationship that God sets up. Third point, and this is the belief, this is fundamental, it's what we're going to unpack today. The scripture, the Old and New Testaments are, do you know what word would go in there? Verbally inspired. 
And so what we're saying here is the inspiration of God goes down to the very words, but the other thing is it's inerrant. That's a word you probably don't use all the time, and I'll define both of these. That means it's trustworthy in the original writings and are of final authority. These are all things we're going to unpack this morning. And here's the key. God's word is powerful to transform lives that receive this revelation by faith. That's our fundamental belief about the Bible. It's not just a human book. It is a human book, but it's not just a human book. And it's a powerful, truthful book that transforms our lives when we incorporate it and do what you guys are talking about. So let's unpack it. Inspired. Okay, I'm a theologian. Definitions. This basically comes to the Westminster Catechism of Faith. That work of what goes in the blank. What goes in the blank? Come on, you can do it. God. Mm-hmm. That work of God, because that's the first thing, where he providentially prepared and moved the what goes in the blank. Human authors. See, and this is a key factor when you talk about the Bible. It's both human and divine. So God is working with humans. So you see a fully human character. These are letters written. These are stories being told. They're biographies of Jesus written by humans. Enable him to receive and communicate according to their individual personalities and styles. So when you read the books of Paul and compare it with the books of Peter, the style is very different because they're different men. But he does, he gives them the truth. He'd have his people know for glory and salvation. So what's it? The book of the Bible is a, reminds us that God redeems, provides, protects, gives the rule of relationship, an intimate relation with him, and good relationship with each other in the community of the Spirit. That's what the Bible's there for. Another word, inerrant. This is a word I would love to get rid of. It's a double negative, not wrong. Why don't we just say truthful? Well, I don't know. But let's say it. The Holy Bible is wholly true. That's what we're saying here. We're saying the Bible is wholly true. And it, it's because of his, some stuff in history is right negatively because the reaction against liberalism is saying the Bible is full of errors. So what we're saying here is everything it actually teaches. Now there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's not actually teaching. So it doesn't say everything in the Bible is wholly true. But everything actually teaches is to be received as truth from God. And here's the key. It speaks accurately in ordinary language. And that's crucial. Because the Bible is not a science book. It's not a philosophy book. It's a book written of humans to tell the story of God and what he's doing. So it's written in ordinary languages, not in technical languages. So let me give you an example. I started out as a math teacher, and here's something in the Bible that talks about math. He made a C, this is outside the temple, it's a big bowl kind of thing on the top of 12 cattle. C of cast metal, it's round, 10 cubits from 10 to brim, 5 cubits high, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Now, math teachers care about this. Science people care about this. The ratio of circumference to diameter is what? That's pi. According to God, what's the value of pi? 30 divided by 10 is what? Well, that's, that's 30 
3.000000. is 3, right? Say yes. yes. Okay, good. <laughs> now, if you go talk to some godless scientists, what do they say pi is? Okay, who got it wrong? Who are you going to believe, God or godless scientists? What did I say about inerrancy? It speaks accurately in ordinary languages. Now, from my science background, when I look at 10, I look at that and I say that's 10 plus or minus 0.5 significant digits. If I look at 30, 30 is 30 plus or minus 0.5. So it's about 10, it's about 30, and you divide those up and you can easily get the scientific value of pi. You make a mistake when it's 30 means 30.000. And 10 means 10.000. It's ordinary language. Does the earth have four corners? The Bible says it does. Does the earth have four corners? No, that's ordinary metaphoric language. See, and we've got... How long did it take Peter to preach the sermon at Pentecost? Acts chapter 2. How long does it take you to read the account in Acts chapter 2? About a minute and 30 seconds. What's the chance Peter spoke a sermon for a minute and 30 seconds? Zero. <laughs> See, it's an accurate summary of a longer sermon. So that's what we're saying when we talk about inerrancy. Why do we believe this? First of all, the Bible teaches it. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3. From infants you know the Holy Scripture was able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breed, sometimes it says inspired, used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when you look at this, we see first of all that it's God-breathed. And we think of breathing, we think of how God created humans in Genesis chapter 2. He took clay breathes into nostrils the breath of life. When somebody speaks, the breath comes out of their mouth. That's what it's talking about, the metaphor that's there. And it says all Scripture has this characteristic of being God-breathed, Old and New Testament. What does it do? It makes you wise for everything about salvation and life. And it's useful teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so you can be equipped for every good work. That's what it's saying. So the summary I've got here, 2 Timothy 3, the Bible teaches the entire Bible comes from God. But it's through human authors. It's useful for finding salvation, showing us truth about God and life, correcting our misconceptions, showing us how to live God's way, we can enjoy God's best for us. The Bible's there to show us that God redeems, protects, provides, Gives us a picture of how to intimate relation with him and good community as a spirit. That's what it's there for. Second Peter chapter 1. Am I going fast enough? <laughs> okay, just want to check to make sure you're, you're, you're lost because you're not, I'm, I'm not getting my job done. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 1. We have this prophetic message is something completely reliable. You don't pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came by the prophet's own interpretation. 
For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, through, though human, spoke from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're saying. So we're looking here. The scripture is completely reliable. The scripture is not from somebody's own understanding and will. It's our, not our own perspective, but this prophecy is, has its origin as humans spoke from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is this mysterious thing where God empowers and people speak, and they speak human words, but they're God's truth. That's what we're saying. So the summary in the handout here, prophets are completely reliable because their words come from men who spoke from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what it's teaching about Scripture. That's what we're saying. We go on. A key thing here is Scripture is the voice of the Spirit. The place we see this is in Acts chapter 4, where it says Peter's praying, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's God the Creator. You, God, spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. So there's a place. When David wrote the psalm that comes right after this, he is speaking Holy Spirit words. That's what we're saying. The Bible teaches it. Why do we believe this? My bottom line comes from Jesus. When I look in scriptures and I see the story of Jesus, Jesus believed and obeyed the Bible himself. And see, that's the thing. Frankly, when I read the Bible, I see a bunch of stuff that makes no sense to me at all. None. I mean, it really doesn't. But the key is, will I, like Jesus, follow Scripture, or will I follow my own judgments? Will I trust that God has a better picture of things than I do? And Scripture gives His judgment on things, and I follow Him, not me. I am a... You guys do Enneagram around here? No? Yes? Enneagram? Some of you need to check it out. Yeah. Those of you who know Enneagram, what does it mean that I'm an Enneagram 8? Challenger. Mm -hmm. That's me. I'm, get it. What does scripture say I should be? Compassionate, gentle, a character of blessing. That's not me. Am I going to do it my way or God's way? See, that's the question. I'm doing everything I can to be a challenger who brings blessing into people's lives. And uses my challenger personality against sin and error. Instead of guys I don't like. The <laughs> next point here. Bible is a meta-narrative. That means it's the big story of everything. That gives excellent questions to the big questions of life. Now I think of big questions. I think what is ultimately real? And my science background says this cosmos is ultimately real. Everything happened by random application of presently operating natural law. When we read scripture, I see a different meta-narrative. I see creation is real, but it's a created thing, and what's ultimately real is the God of creation. When I see things like the problem of evil, I look at the covenant school back in Nashville. 
I don't know anybody that was there, but I have friends who have friends that died there. What's that about? See, the Bible gives a narrative that says there was a rebellion in the heavenlies led by Satan, and that has now been brought to earth, and we're created to do good to overcome that evil. That's the biblical narrative. There's a piece you once get an AK-47 to go kill the bad guys. No. I'm supposed to do good to them. I'm supposed to feed my enemies and love them and leave vengeance to God. That's what we're talking about. It gives excellent answers to the big questions of life. Sherwin White is a non-Christian Roman historian. Any attempt to reject the basic historicity of Scripture, even in matters of deal, must be absurd. He's not a believer. He's a historian. Because the Bible's stuff that comes right. And then lastly, <laughs> I love this one, the Bible passes the criterion of embarrassment. We just went through an election routine here in Oregon. We had three women running for governor. It never happened before. And every one of them are telling what about themselves. I'm the best person that ever walked on God's green earth. <laughs> right? And that other one's a schnock. That's why politics works. <laughs> now, the funny thing, we look in Scripture, who's the number one dude in the early church? Who's the number one dude in the early church? Peter. What did the Gospels tell us about Peter? He denied the Savior. Oops, that's a little embarrassing. Who are the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection according to Scripture? You're going to celebrate it next week. Who are the first witnesses? Women. What are their categories in that Jewish culture? They're completely unworthy of giving any witness. If women tell you the story, you, don't, you believe it's false. Why does Scripture say women told the story first by command of the angel? And the answer is, that's what happened. It also speaks something about the power of women in the church of Jesus Christ. See, and that's where it, the Bible path, it's embarrassing to tell these stories. Why do we have them there? Because that's the way it happened. God uses hurting and broken people to do his good work. Some questions. Are the Bible's eyewitness, are the gospel's eyewitness testimony or products of a game of telephone? Did you guys ever play telephone? <laughs> How do you do that? How do you do telephone? You start off one message. One message, and then what do you do with it? How do you pass it on? How do you tell them? You whisper in their ear. How many people hear what you're saying? One. How well do they hear? By the time you get through 13 people, what comes out on their end from that statement? Now, is that the way the Bible stories are told? Is it a game of telephone that goes down the line? The answer is absolutely not. It was proclaimed publicly with eyewitnesses there. Some 55 years and a bit ago, a pretty woman manipulated me to marry her. <laughs> it's true. We'd seen to serve with love. I was parked in her little two-seater sports car up in the East Mason, Albuquerque, and she used her feminine wiles and pretty person to manipulate me to ask her to marry me. True story. Now, I wasn't against the idea, to be sure, but I had no idea of doing it that night. 
Now, if I change that story, because I've told it many times, Sherry's not here, but if she or she would say, well, it's kind of like that. <laughs> See, if I change the story, everybody would say, that's not what you said, Gary. See, the gospel stories are told publicly before eyewitnesses. It's not a game of telephone. That's how you can rely on these stories. It's also in a high memory culture. Do we have the right words in the biblical text? It's called textual criticism. And here's the facts. We have more than 20,000 handwritten manuscripts in various languages and almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts. I mean, that's a huge number. In addition, we have more than one million quotations from New Testament church by church fathers. We've got a huge amount of data to work through. I took a course in textual criticism back when I was in, in seminary and learned about this, and it's stunning. Bart Ehrman says there's 400,000 mistakes in the Bible. Well, that's taking every possible variation, and most of them have nothing. So here's the outcome. The New Testament is 99.5% textually pure. This is the New Testament. In the entire 20,000 lines of the text of the Bible, there are only 40 lines that are in doubt, and that's about 400 words. And even Bart Ehrman agrees, none of these variations affects any significant doctrine. Now, there are things like the ending of Mark. We know the ending of Mark that's in your Bibles is not the original ending. We know it's not. It's an authentic story. We think maybe the outside of the scroll was damaged and we lost the original identity. We're not talking about that. Or the Lord's Prayer that ends, for thine be the power and the glory forever. We know that's not in the original. We're not talking about those. What we're talking about is things like in Romans 5.1, where it says, because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Does it say we have peace of God? Or does it say, let us have peace with God? We have no idea which one's original. How big difference does that make? We have peace with God or let us have peace with God. It makes no difference whatsoever. That's the actual variations that we find in textual scripture. You can, if you want to do more, Google Dan Wallace text criticism. You can look at the original manuscripts. It's amazing. Do we have the right books? That's the question of canon. And the thing here, the canonical books, I'm talking about the New Testament here, and the New Testament books were immediately accepted by the church. Why were the particular books of the New Testament chosen of the letters of Paul? We know we don't have all the letters of Paul because he talks about some letters we don't have. Why did they pick the letters they did? Simply because they went viral on YouTube. <laughs> That's what it was. He goes, wow, this is great. Started copying it and sent it to the next church down the road. The Roman church formalized its commendation, or its commendation in the Council of Carthage 397 AD, but these books were immediately accepted and immediately rendered authoritative. It's not some council 400 years later that did that. So the 39 books of the Old Testament, Protestant canon, were accepted, look at this, they're accepted by all Jews and all Christians. How many things do all Jews and all Christians agree on? This is it. That's it. Everybody says the 39 books you have in your Bible are authoritative word of God. Everybody. 
Now, there is an issue here, and that is the Apocrypha, because if you look in the Roman Catholic Bible, they have some extra books. That's a different question. How many, how many branches of Christianity do you think accept the 27 books of the New Testament? The answer is every branch. Every branch of Christianity accepts the same 27 books in the New Testament. There's some debate, but no serious question about the books where the author is not clear. So all Jews, all Christians agree on the 39 books. All Christians agree on the 27 books in the New Testament. It's not even a question. So of the four canonical Gospels, only they date from the first century. The so-called Gnostic Gospels, if you go around, you know there's a lot of questions about the Gnostic Gospels. You ever know what those are? Well, let me show you one. Gospel of Thomas. Somebody asked about the Gnostic Gospels, that kind of thing. Just ask them, uh, like, what are you talking about? And they say, well, things like the Gospel of Thomas. You say, okay, have you read it? What will they almost always say? No, but I heard about it. So what do you do? Get out your phone and look up the Gospel of Thomas and look through it. It's 114 sayings. It's not a gospel. It's 114 sayings, a lot of which are just canonical. But the very last saying is number 114. And this is the saying. Simon Peter said to him, Jesus, let Mary leave us for women are not worthy of life. Wow, exactly. Okay, Peter, there you go again. (laughs) So what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, you're a jerk. Give me your badge back. You're not going to be a pastor anymore. In the Gospel of Thomas, this is what Jesus says. Jesus said, I myself will lead her in order to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling a male. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Why do we not accept the Gospel of Thomas? Because it says trash like this. I mean, what can I say? This is, and it's also written in the third century, way later. And I mean, this, this is not some secret thing that was put out by some male white supremacist type thing at all. There is absolutely no evidence of conspiracy by the church to doctor the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, to impose orthodoxy. There's no evidence whatsoever. So Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code asserted that, but he did it without any evidence whatsoever. So Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, just ask if they ever looked at it, and they never have. If they do, you'll find out why we don't accept it. Are our translations trustworthy? How many of you read Greek fluently? And read Hebrew fluently. Well, I shouldn't raise my hand because I don't. I can translate them, but I don't read them well. So what about the translations? See, and this is a crucial question because I can't go back and just read the Greek or read the Hebrew. What I'm going to suggest to you is every translation is faithful to present the truth of the original text so that for all practical purposes, we can say about the Bible in our hand, any major translation, this is the word of God. This is the word of God. See, we don't have to doubt our translations. This really isn't a problem. 
And what I suggest, and there are some places where you get differences in translation in it being significant, like Malachi 2.16, God says, I hate divorce in some translations. And that means somebody's been divorced, it's not like God hates them. If you look in other translations, you look at that in context, is I hate the one who divorces his wife. It's poetry, it's difficulty of translation. So what I suggest, if you're going to study seriously, read some different translations. Read a translation that's more formal equivalents, word for word. The New American Standard 2020 is the first time I live, but English Standard Version, King James, the Net Bible, New Revised Standard, any of those. Compare it with dynamic equivalents, more meaning for meaning, NIV, the Christian Standard Bible, New Living, Common English Bible, uh, the Message. Compare it with a Catholic translation, New American Bible, New Jewish Bible, and compare it with a Jewish Bible. I like the CJB, the Common Jewish Bible. It's a Messianic Jewish translation. And if you can, a language other than English. And what you find, if they all agree, you know you've got the Word of God. There are a few places like Malachi 2.16 where they go very significantly. Then you get some help and find out what's going on. But if you do this kind of work, you can get accurate Word of God without any hesitation whatsoever. And you can have confidence, I'm hearing the Word of God. But then go take Greek and Hebrew at Western Seminary and you'll be great. <laughs> Authority. There's a whole bunch of stuff in that handout. This guy, Jason, he said, Gary, quit in 30 minutes. I'm already at 31. He's censoring me. Can you believe it? <laughs> Golly. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I'll use my 40 minutes. I've, I've given my friend a hard time. It's never happened until right now before, but yeah, there we go. When I think about authority, because this is a Christian, does the Bible have authority to tell me how to live my life? Does the Bible have authority to tell how to live my married life? Does the Bible have authority to tell how to be my life as a parent and a grandparent? The answer is it does. It does. So when you think about authority, what we're thinking here, as the inspired word of God, the Bible is alone. The Bible alone is the final authority in all matters of life, faith and life. The Bible alone is at the top level. And it's the final authority. Now there are other authorities in my life. The government is an authority in my life. Elders in my church are an authority in my life. My pretty wife is an authority in my life. Because I want to please her. And there's lots of authority. Science is an authority in my life. The Holy Spirit is an authority in my life. But what I'm saying is, all those things, if they differ from Bible, they're wrong. And that's the key. And that comes in lots of different areas. We think about sexuality, and of course that's a big one. But how about the issues of money and power? We don't list those right up at front, but frankly, the issues of money for us Americans are a far bigger issue than sexuality. And I don't mean to mean the issues of sexuality at all. What do we do with our money? We spend it mostly on making me happy. That's not a biblical value. Why do we do that? Because the culture has an authority. And that's a place where we bought the cultural authority without really taking seriously the biblical statements about money. And I'll just call you. The Bible does give us authority for money. 
And the trick is you're measured by how much you give away, not how much you have. But see, we measure it by personal pleasure and fulfillment. And that is not the biblical value. Because we're told to love our neighbor, even love our enemies, with our money. That's why the Bible is an uncomfortable book. I love reading the Bible. I don't. Well, I do, but I don't. <laughs> it's a hard book to read. I've got two basic responses to the Bible. What? Or, huh. Those are my two basic responses to the Bible. Yeah. What? Or, huh. It's the final authority. There are lots of other authorities in all matters of faith and life. What it teaches, and this is the key, like I said before, what it actually teaches comes divine authority because it is the covenant document of God's redemptive relationship with his people. The Bible is shown us who God is, the one who redeems, protects, provides, and it's the ground rules of a love relationship so we can intimate relation with God and a good relation within the community of the Spirit and with our cultural community. It gives us the principles to do that. Now there's a whole bunch more stuff on the handout there that you'll all memorize before you leave the building, right? <laughs> no, you won't. But down at the very bottom, and the worship team's going to come up here in a second because I'm almost done. Why are so many issues where the Bible doesn't tell us what to do? Why are there so many issues where the Bible doesn't tell us what to do? There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them that doesn't... I just, just another sentence would really help me through a quandary. Well, the first thing is we've got to remember that what the Bible prescribes, we must believe it and do it. And that's why I mentioned the money thing. Sexuality, for sure. The Bible's really clear. One man, one woman, husband and wife for life. Any sexual activity outside of that relationship is sin. There are levels of sin, to be sure. It's really clear. Our culture gives you a completely different view. Sexuality is a whole person, pleasurable activity between a husband and wife to express, confirm, and deepen their marital relationship. That's the purpose of sex. I did an interview with Willamette Week a while back. They wanted me to come out with something fight and fun and be anti-sex. I'm totally pro-sex. I am wildly pro-sex. I've been doing it for 55 years. Because it's a really, really blessed thing of God if you do it His way. And all you got to do is read the sociology, see the damage that comes when you do it other ways. What the Bible prescribes, we do. But there's a lot of stuff the Bible describes. It didn't command it, it just gives us stories and scriptures as this is the way their church did things. Acts chapter 6 tells us how they made a decision in a case of racial discrimination. How they made that decision, Acts chapter 6, I think is a pattern of how we should make those kinds of decisions today. It's not a command, it's a description. I think we should follow it. The last point. When the Bible is silent, or it doesn't say, and there are a lot of things where the Bible doesn't say, what time shall we have church? How long shall the sermon be? Am I mad at Jason because I'm almost out of time? No. See, if I'm in, when I'm in Ukraine, which I've done a fair bit of teaching over there at Odessa, 
if I go to church service there, they have three church services, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and three sermons per service. So we can have nine sermons. Why do you guys only have one? See, it's, the Bible's silent. Should you even have a sermon? The Bible's silent on all that stuff. So how do we make those kinds of decisions? I don't think the Bible forgot to say it. I think the Bible is purposely silent on a whole bunch of issues because cultures and church size and such are different. He intends to give us the freedom to be spirit-led and wise. Now, those of you who want a religious document that's going to give every detail, I'm like the Francis Chan thing, you came to the wrong place. But in those places where the Bible is silent, we have to follow the biblical principles to apply it in our lives. So my summary statement comes from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Holy Scripture is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and embraced as God's promise in all that it promises. Holy Bible, holy true, because it's the inspired Word of God that spoke through human authors in human context because it comes to us as human creatures. It tells us that God is the one who provide, who redeems, protects, provides, gives us principles for living our life so we can have an intimate relation with God and a good relationship of justice, love, and community among us. That's the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the beauty of your scripture, and it is a beautiful book. The intricate crafting that goes on there is absolutely stunning. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to respond that we can be transformed as we make that the sin of our lives. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to show us how to live with your life and empowering the gospel writers to give us that story so we know what you did so we can follow your example. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we come to you as people who want to be like you, to love you well, to live the life you want us to live so we can be fully fulfilled as a community of spirit. I speak blessing to Rise Church here and your church around the world in Jesus' name.